Hello, welcome to the Pink Spoke Podcast with John Cribbs and Christopher Funderburg. Yes, welcome. If you hear kids screaming and shouting in the background at any point during this podcast, we're going to apologize. It's my two daughters, but I think it's a good thing that you hear a house filled with joy and laughter from two children who aren't creeping around like a bunch of eerily intelligent freakoids like the kids in this obscure well it's interesting when when you had your second child you said i'm going to raise them just to be like miles and flora i did say that i said that's very strange do you understand the subtext of that novel and you said no chris and you weren't thinking about that either when you started to make this joke right on top of this right now no, what I meant when I said that was that I didn't want to be bothered with anything. You know? <laughs> I got my life in London going on. I did not want to have to know anything about my kids, the, the, the children I'm in charge of. Is that why you had me take them? You were exploiting my, like, doe-eyed love of you? God damn it, John. I thought I, I was know. raising them because you were too busy, not because your house was haunted. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is the, this is the, our book podcast for the month. And, uh, usually we do something a little more pulpy. Two-fisted. Two-fisted, yeah. Uh, Two-fisted tale. This is more like a well-loved classic of American literature slash English literature. Yes. How you consider Henry James, the author of The Turn of the Screw, which we're going to be talking about today. Yes. illusions were not clear enough. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny. I was thinking about Henry James, how like, uh, like he's fake British. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was an American who moved to England when he was in his 20s, like the second half of his 20s. And it reminds me of like when Madonna was married to Guy Ritchie and started saying like, uh, like I'm going out with the lads for a pint. And you were like, what the fuck? Madonna's just going to try and pull this now that she's British. That's Henry James. He's the Madonna <laughs> of literature. And I don't know the full story, but I know that he, towards the end of his life, obtained British uh, citizenship. Sure, and, but he also and his sister. Yeah, but, then, yeah. but then his sister, I think, or somebody, after he died, brought him back to America to be buried, even though the whole reason that he wanted to, at the end of his life, change over to British citizenship because he wanted to be buried in England. Yeah. he's <laughs> like, Nice try, Henry James. Yeah. He's, he's definitely... Uh... To me, he's very classically American in that when he had some measure of success, he wanted to pretend he was British, which is one <laughs> of the most American things you can do. It's to pretend like in order to be classy, pretend like you're British. And um, he did it long before it was a trendy thing, to be fair. Exactly. He's one of the first. He's one of the most important. Um, if you can't hear from this, John and I are actually both huge Henry James fans. We're going to be joking a lot, around a lot, I think, in this episode. I have no idea why. Some of the, the film versions we're going to be talking about, in addition to the novels, uh, deserve to be made fun of. But I don't know. I have Don't let uh, our irreverent tone belie that... Um, we both love Henry James. One of the other things I was going to say about Henry James before we dig into all of this is I think no author has been more hurt in their reputation from, there was like an academic shift that's happened in the past 20 years about like the curriculum has too many old dead white guys in it. And when people sort of looked at their syllabus and they said, well, we got to get rid of somebody to get in different voices and diversity. Uh, let's get rid of Henry James. 
is what they all said. He was picked over and over. And I think it's a good thing. This is not me complaining. Like, Toni Morrison is just as good a writer of Henry James. To have her in the curriculum is no tragedy. But I think that collectively, academia decided if we got, if somebody's got to go to make way for different perspectives and voices, and it needs there to be different perspectives and voices. I'm not uh, uh, decrying the change. I'm just saying this was the guy who got the can. Don't you think that's fair to say? He's uh, like, like yeah. nobody represents old dead white guy more than Henry James. Yeah, and I mean, with Henry James too, we're talking a writer's writer here. I mean, yes. a lot of folks you say, you know, they say, oh, that was a great story. That was a great yarn. That was an amazingly well-told narrative. And with Henry James, it really... In his best works, it's just about the immersion into that writing. Just what a fucking great writer is. Yeah. And it's complex, long paragraphs, long sentences. You know, I can remember the first time trying to read one of his books as a short story as a teenager. And the opening sentence, it's, uh, it's, I think it's called The Sitters is the story. But it's, sitters were my visitors, though not in the sense which I would have preferred. And just reading it over and over again and being like, what the fuck am I reading here? What does this sentence mean? <laughs> you know? And it's yeah. a lot of that. Like, it's slow going. When I was telling you, when we went to reread this, you know, this is a, a short, it's a novella. It's about 100 pages long in the small type, small page book I have. Um, you know, normally the books in this series, you know, we go to read Jim Thompson and I sit down, you know, two afternoons. I'm like, 200 pages? I'll read 100 a day. This is like, I was reading a little and like in a half an hour, I'd read six pages and was like, oh, yeah. It's slow going. <laughs> Let me give myself more time for this. It is. It's something that you really got to devote your time to, which and is good. And your concentration, yes. And it's worth, worth the time that you invest in it, unlike tons of other famous authors. So. Yes. It's immersive, too, for yes. that reason, is mm -hmm. you get really deep into it. And we'll talk more about the story, but just what one of the things that blew me away is this movie is or this movie this story is not bookended but it has a little prologue where uh they're sort of telling a christmas eve ghost story and it's written in one voice and then it switches to these letters that the original narrator has said he's received and it switches to another voice and they're so distinct and con and concrete voices and but still so complex but in different ways it's one of those just like holy shit what a writer man mm -hmm. you know kind of shifts in voice you know that it that it's two very distinct voices and perspectives and doesn't lose any of its complexity you read it i feel like when filmmakers see a movie by mike lee i don't know how they don't see it and go well i fucking give up what he just did the bar is so high and so complicated how can i compete reading this if you're a writer that reads this it's just like how do you not go fuck man i give up you know yeah yeah uh, i should i should uh, also note that besides all that besides the you know academic ca cancellation of henry james this particular novella turn of the screw if we are going to kind of take an irreverent sort of laid back sort of fun attitude towards it, besides the fact that we're going to be talking about it and all its film adaptations, it's that it's just the most turned upside down, inside out, just analyzed to death. Yeah. Every, there. every academic has trudged their dirty feet across the threshold of this book. Mm. Every major critical movement of the 20th century spent a lot of time trudging their muddy boots all over this fucking thing. 
You know, it's, it's to try and have an original idea about turn of the screw is virtually impossible. It's just everybody who matters has like given their two cents on this. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, I mean, it's definitely, it deserves it. It deserves that level of analysis. Yeah. But at the same time, it, as complicated as it is, it can be read as just a straight up ghost story. James yeah. A lot of ghost stories. And we're going to try to, especially because a lot of the adaptations really do make it just a straight up ghost story. We're going to kind of try it from that angle. We're going to try to look at this as a genre piece specifically. It's kind of the yeah. justification I think that we have in talking about this on this particular program. It is a ghost story. It is a yeah. horror book and it's an incredibly influential gothic romantic horror book as well uh this is an incredibly influential book in in the way that something like frankenstein is a literary achievement but also is a genre defining thing i think that this is i think you can put turn of the screw uh it's not on the level of frankenstein but in the neighborhood of that you know the same way that that certainly you can place it way above dracula you know, oh, yeah. but it, it belongs, I think, alongside those things that if you were going to pick what is the sort of inception of a subgenre, that it's this book in a lot of ways. Absolutely agree. So before we dive into this and into the film adaptations, let's start with our aperitifs. What, Chris, did you pick to recommend to people to read or watch before diving into turn this? I feel like I'm going to steal yours because it's so obvious. It's possible. Perfect. It's possible. What do you got? Curse of the Cat yep, People. Yep, you got it. God damn it. <laughs> God damn it, I knew No, it's it. nice. It's the first time we've ever butted heads on yeah. this. That's good. It's just too perfect. It's, it's just too perfect. Unbelievably perfect to compare uh, these two things. But go yeah. ahead. Curse of the Cat People was a, a sequel, one of the films that Val Luton produced for RKO uh, to Cat People. It has very little in common with Cat People. It's almost like a dream sequel in some way, like a dream logic reimagining of Cat People. But it's about... Um, a little girl who's uh, being a sort of aristocratic girl in a, in a state who's being visited by a ghost, possibly, of her father's uh, deceased wife. That's a fair explanation of what's happening, right? Right. She appears to her, and this is a six-year-old girl, as yeah. her, her magical playmate. Uh, it's yes. been, and this is relevant, too, to what we'll be discussing about Turn of the Screw, is that it's established in the movie that Amy, the six-year-old, sees this picture of Arena. The, the yeah. dead wife before the magical playmate appears to her. Yes. So she has a description. So it, it automatically there is this ambiguity in the movie of, is she just taking that image and imagining it? Or is there a more direct connection to this dead person and this phantasm that she's seeing? Yes. It's the classic Val Luton movie that rides the tension between, is it supernatural or is there a human explanation and never resolves it? Yeah. Or ambiguously resolves it. Yeah, and it gets really into some screw territory with the introduction of a gothic house that's occupied by an aging actress named Julia Farron and her adult daughter, Barbara, who's played by the great Elizabeth Russell, who's the Mia Sostra woman from Cat People, the original Cat People. Yeah, Um, and like a one-scene wonder in the original Cat People that you're like, who the fuck was that? That's so memorable. Some actress's daughter in the sequel. (laughs) Right, but so anyway, um, once it introduces the subplot, there's this mounting danger because Barbara becomes uh, jealous of Amy's relationship with Julia, who has alienated Barbara to such an extent that she claims that Barbara's a spy pretending to be her daughter. It's this really fucked up psychological situation. And the movie culminates in a confrontation between 
Barbara and Amy, which let's just do the checklist here. A character dies of a heart attack. Yes. A ghost reappears and a woman and a child embrace. So you've got that. You have Sir Lancelot playing the Mrs. Gross role, basically, as a butler. who's yeah. concerned about Amy getting involved with the uh, Farons. So there are a lot of connections, but mainly it's this ambiguity. It's this, you know, Val Luton idea that... Yeah, can I add one thing? It could be yeah. supernatural or not. But yeah, of course, go ahead. One thing to that checklist, too, when I was putting my notes together to do this episode and talking about Curse of the Cat people, these stories are so similar that I thought I said which one is it in where the little girl puts the birthday party invitations in the hole in the tree so they never get delivered. Right. I couldn't remember if it was Flora or the girl from Curse of the Cat People. That's how similar in tone they are that I had this moment of, wait, wait, which one is that actually in? Because that's something, that's a great detail that could happen in either one. You and know? yeah, absolutely. And Cat Pe- Curse the Cat People yeah. uh, digs in, really goes all in on two on this, this thing that's not talked about very much about Turn of the Screw, which is the what is and is not appropriate fantasy for a child. Yes. And that, yes. that scene really is perfect with that because, you know, on the one hand, her father told her this is a magic tree. So, okay, so she puts in these invitations for her birthday party because they'll magically get delivered to all her friends. And then he finds them and realizes that's why nobody came to the birthday party and yells at her. But he's the one who told her this is a magic tree. Yes. It's very similar to Miles at the end of the turn of the screw where he sort of has this like, lady, I hate you. You're doing this to me reaction. Or Flora freaking out and being like, I want to be taken away from her. You Mm -hmm. know, where the kid sort of has this like awareness of how the adults are fucking them up psychologically somehow and isn't quite able to articulate it and the adults react with horror to the behavior of the children that they are quite possibly causing yes they're angry at what they're doing to the kids and not not having an awareness of it exactly yeah and that's one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot with turning the screw because people are so you know get get so pent up about the the uh, possible psychosexual craziness that's getting that's involved you know or the or yeah. what's going on with the governess and that the kids you know are either possessed by these ghosts or influenced by these ghosts and they don't really think about how the kids are reacting if you take all of that away you know like yes. what the kids point of view is of all of this yeah but i think curse of the cat people really explores that quite a bit yeah let's go through the plot of the of the book just to catch everybody up of the novella so the plot of Turn Screw by Henry James is that an unnamed 20-year-old Parsons daughter is engaged as a governess in the county manor of Bly, where she is to educate and form eight-year-old Flora. She's been hired by Flora's uncle and guardian, who has uh, distanced himself from his charges and made it clear to the governess, he does not want to be bothered at all with the kids. Do not contact me. You take care of everything. And she goes along with it because he's like a young, handsome, Mr. Darcy-esque man. The seductive who, fellow. Right? Yeah, by her own admission, she's sort of like, that guy could have told me to, you know, dump in a puddle mud and I would have done it and it would have like given me a lady boner. You know what I right. mean? Just like anything he was going to say, she'd be like, I'd love to do it, you know? It's established that he has a way of convincing people to do things for him. Yeah, um, especially innocent young women. Right. Uh, so shortly after she arrives and establishes herself in the house, Flora's 10-year-old brother Miles is expelled from school for reasons that are unexplained. She takes it to be that 
he's an injury to others, right? That he must have had some corruptive effect on his fellow classmates. Like get in a fight and beat up another student. Smash his head against the floor. <laughs> we'll get into that. Uh, shortly after Miles' return to Bly, the governess begins seeing a strange man about the grounds who, upon description, the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross, believes to be Peter Quint, a former valet of if ill... Peter Quint, he is. A I'm former just going to valet... pepper you with impressions of every version while you're going through this. <laughs> who had a, a close relationship with Miles and subsequently died under mysterious circumstances. They say that he fell while drunk, but it's not ruled out that somebody could have bumped him off. Yeah, like shot him with an arrow when he drowned in a puddle. Something like that. So later on, while sitting by the lake with Flora, the governess sees another specter across the lake who she believes to be the spirit of her predecessor, Miss Jessel, also deceased, who she learns was involved in this sordid affair with Quint while she was the children's tutor. So the governess becomes convinced that the two apparitions are trying to claim the children's souls. And although there's no direct evidence that the kids can see the ghost and are keeping their ongoing relationship with Quentin Jessel a secret from her. Yes. She thinks they're possessed that in some way, the ghosts are manifestations projected by the children, that the ghosts sort of are the children in some way. Right. And at, and at the very least, whatever relationship they had with the inappropriate relationship they had with Quint and Jessel before she came is now continuing behind her back. It's like a conspiracy against her specifically, but she believes that, you know, these children will ultimately be corrupted by these two evil spirits. Yes. And that she has a duty to save their immortal souls. Yes. That a lot of what drives her is these innocent children are in danger, are in a demonic supernatural danger. And this story, it's important to remember, it's a Victorian era story. It was published in uh, 1898, uh, I believe. Um, I believe I believe it it appeared in in a um in an omnibus of some kind originally, but it was it from was serialized originally, yeah, yeah, be like twelve parts or something like that. Uh, is that the supernatural in this era was still very much tied to the spiritual and the Christian. One thing that you should remember as we're talking about this is in the modern era, ghosts are seen and spirits are seen as being pagan things, right? This is still the era where ghosts are uh, entwined with Christian mythology in some way, that a ghost can be demonic. The afterlife is Christian and spiritual. It is not paranormal and it is not witchcraft necessarily right that's important to keep in mind and something that you've already brought up that i feel like we should talk about because uh in all the film adaptations very few of them uh created as a framing narrative which is what the novella is it starts with this guy douglas who i guess is sort of the um uh, in the Planet of the Apes, he's the apes in space who are reading this story, this uh, <laughs> story that they found in a bottle in, in space yeah. uh, because they never end up in any of the film adaptations. So this guy Douglas claims that the governess was his former governess um, who is now dead, that she entrusted him with this story that happened to her before he was her governess, which makes you wonder why would anyone hire her after the events of the story? But anyway... It's um, he's telling it as a Christmas ghost story, which yes, in, at that time in Victorian a, England, yeah. yeah. No, it belongs to the the English tradition of Christmas Eve ghost stories, which is something I'm fascinated by. You know, obviously the most famous one is a Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, Ever heard sure. of that one? <laughs> um, or this, I was going to say the Signal Man, but whatever. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, this is a Christmas Eve ghost story, which is something I'm fascinated by and don't know a lot about. I don't even know if it's still a modern tradition. To me, I associate it so much with these like creepy Victorian stories. Well, yeah, it's a Victorian tradition. Victorian era was like talking about ghosts right before Christmas. And again, to tie it into spirituality and Christianity, that Christmas Eve ghost story is so tightly tied to Christianity. Well, historically in England, 20, uh, December 25th has a close link to the pre-Christian solstice festivals yes. uh, that viewed midwinter as a time when light dies and the veil between the world of the living and the dead is most thin. Yes. So that's why it became a tradition during that time. And you got lots of uh, stories by M.R. James, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, Sheridan Lefanu, and of course, Dickens and, uh, and others. Yeah. So it became a tradition. So it's framed like that. And uh, what I feel is... As a manuscript. It's very uh, manuscript, uh, right. The Spy Who Loved Me. Right. And Douglas really does a lot to... <laughs> s- it's not it's just like The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, Douglas sets it up as not, uh, not not a story of sheer terror, but of dreadfulness. Yes. Those descriptions of his that I love. I would love to see a movie rated R for general uncanny ugliness and horror and pain, as he describes <laughs> You know, my favorite thing about the intro, too, is the title, Turn of the Screw, comes from the intro where he's saying, you know what a real, we all know what horror stories are, right? These ghost stories, they'd be really terrible. Imagine if they involved a kid, that would be a real, and like the young rapt woman who he's trying to sort of impress with the story is like, that would be a real turn of the screw. He's like, yeah. And then he goes, what would it be if two kids were involved and nobody answers and it's like turn of two screws? What are you, what's the implication (laughs) that you've just left hanging there? (laughs) It'd be called, it'd be even worse. It'd be even screwier. Too screwed. Too turned too screwed. <laughs> Just, I love that it's left to waft in the air like a fart, noisy and stink. So, yeah, and the title comes up again, too, in the actual narrative towards the end because she, when she's going to confront Miles at the end, when she thinks she's going to be able to exercise him of this demon, she says this is going to be the turn of the screw that she's going to, you know, really up the ante, right? To actually come out. So obviously something that people talk about a lot in this story are, are the ghost real? Is this the story of a repressed governess experiencing a psychosexual meltdown? I say, how about both? Yes. Well, it's clearly, James is a great writer. Like a lot of those uh, stories, like, um, you know, I think of Lucretia Martel's The Headless Woman, Michael Haneke's uh, Cachet, unintentionally unresolvable narratives that people scour for the one clue that proves it one way or the other, it always feels like, how could you possibly miss the point? The ambiguity is deliberate and not supposed to be resolved. Mm -hmm. Even if you think you found the thing that resolves it, that's not the point of it. Yeah. I mean, I've always looked at ghosts myself as manifestations of past traumas, unresolved emotions, right? Memories that we can't get away yeah. from. And I love Turn of the Screw for being a narrative about the way our shit somehow links together, you know, where you have yeah. the kids with their uh, their uh, time with the Quentin Jessel. You've got uh, the governess with her obviously very repressed past coming together. And again, that title, Turn of the Screw, making an already bad situation worse is what's going on here. You know, you're adding yeah. somebody with a lot of baggage into a situation that's very volatile, that a lot of bad things are going on. I think also as evidence, all of Henry James's other ghosts are real. 
you yes. know, are unambiguous, unambiguous, ugh, unambiguously, I can't, unambiguously real. Yeah, they like tear your fingers off and shit. Like they're <laughs> things you can punch. They're not just real. They're like corporal. You know, they're yeah. they're physical manifestations of things. They're like dudes you can yell at. Is what yeah. I think of it. the traditional Henry James ghost is somebody that you're like, hey, you, and it turns around. Yeah, sister in the romance of certain old clothes kills somebody, the dead fiance and friend of the friends, the ancestors of Owen Wingrave. I mean, these are all real things that are physical manifestations. Yeah. To me, there's several things going on with the ghosts here. The, the, the first thing that this book is about that I feel like is unambiguous, and I don't know how it would have read to Victorian audiences, but I feel like they would have una- the ghosts would have unambiguously read as child abusers, that this is a book about child abuse in Mm -hmm. some way and how child abuse manifests in children and everything miles does uh throughout the book what when it finally comes out what he's accused of doing in school is saying things that are so horrid that he gets kicked out of school when that again spoilers we're going to resolve all the mysteries talk about every single version we can burn through all of this uh but so go read it as always i mean read this book if you haven't read this book what are you doing you went to a terrible college no read (laughs) this book um it's about something terrible happened to miles and everything that happened to miles that peter quint did and peter quint is accused of um raping Ms. Jessel, essentially. Well, it's more like she was a willing participant in her own defilement. She was a good woman who really enjoyed this bad valet doing shit to her. And that Ms. Gross also says that it wasn't just Ms. Jessel, this beast of a man had his way with, it was everybody, Mm -hmm. right? That he had his way with all of them is her exact phrase. And the implication is Flora's too young to remember it. And that Miles, that the things he said are probably related to the abuse he suffered at the hands of Peter Quint. I think it reads very unambiguously that way. And I think that the way a lot of Victorian literature functions, it would have read unambiguously that way to those audience where everything was codified and all of the sexuality was subtext and repressed. Another thing that's important to remember about the Victorian era in the context of this book is this is one of the key eras in which teenagers and tweens and young teens are seen as being a different category from adults in the medieval era uh, and even the renaissance era leading up to this adults were little children Uh, adults seven years old you can see in paintings uh, uh, from those earlier eras are drunk at feasts are presented as um as being just little adults. And there's not much of a differentiation between them. Their jobs that they're given are according to their physical strength. You know, like you can do a job if you're strong enough to do it. And again, if you have secondary sexual characteristics, if you've hit puberty, you're now old enough to get married and have kids. That was the definition of it as well. And the Victorian era is when these distinctions are being drawn and the realization of a civilized culture that this is bad and kids aren't able to handle this stuff 
that there should be lines drawn between adults and children, right? That's also a big part of how this is codified and what this book is going through is realizing that adults can do terrible things to kids that affect them their whole lives and trying to contend with it. And you don't even get until later in the 20th century when things like child labor, when industrialization happens and children are just getting crushed, that children shouldn't be working in the coal mines in the sweatshops. Um, this is when all of this stuff is being defined out. It's a little weird to talk about as a dude. I always feel like if I touch on any of these subjects, it's such a live wire. I feel like, um, I think about a, an old friend of mine is a professor at McGill now, but she had written about the, how, uh, Shirley Temple was a sexualized figure, right? Um, and I remember talking with her about it and being like, hey, have fun writing that. If I wrote it, my life would be over. Because if you're a dude and you write that article that's like, come on, guys, we're totally getting boners to this. The implication is, me as a dude, I'm getting a boner to this. If you're a woman who writes that article, it's like, can you believe fucking dudes were getting a boner to this? It's plain as day, right? So I like touching on, and your silence will only incriminate you here, John, leaving me out <laughs> to dry. But, but even touching on the idea of how this book deals with um, child sexuality at an era when that stuff is being sorted out more clearly. Um, again, where the Victorian era is famous for, you have uh, people like Lewis Carroll, where a lot of looking back at him is like, wait, was he a pedophile? And it's like, no, he probably not. I mean, who the hell knows? Just mores were so wildly different than when you hear like he had a collection of nudes of underage kids. And it's like, that was just what they did. And you're like, I don't know about that. Right. Mm, sure. This shit is all getting sorted out in this era in a way that this book is very much contending with that. Right. Right. And to me, the interesting part about the ambiguity of are they ghosts or are they real? What Henry James, I think, is asking with this book is sort of, a, you know, a, 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 a theodicy question, you know, about the nature of the existence of evil. Is this evil that's been inflicted on these kids, is it human corporeal evil? Like it was a bad... Um, valet and uh, a bad governess who was in cahoots with the valet who were people, right? Who did this stuff? Or is it supernatural? Is it connected to God and spirituality and the other world? Is it the devil or is it a person? is what this book is asking is what is the nature of evil? Is it supernatural that seizes people up and is a possession that has to be expelled out? Or is it human and ingrained in you in something that you can't get out of you? And I think that's why it's important not to resolve the ambiguity uh, because I don't think anybody can resolve that ambiguity that the nature of the existence of evil is a famously unresolvable spiritual problem and if you think you've got it figured out great let me get some pamphlets for your cult because i'm interested in hearing more which really stacks the deck against the governess in this narrative because she's trying to resolve a problem that is irresolvable right yes that she, yes. that her only, the only thing she can do is try to convince other people of things that only she has seen. She has to say to everyone that it's an actual supernatural phenomenon. If you're going to yes. take the angle of sexual assault, right? Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, the governess was probably a victim of sexual assault when she was younger. And that's why 
this is such an important thing to her. This is why she yes. becomes so passionate in her need to get these kids away from this evil or to resolve their uh, the past evil that's been, been put upon them. Yeah. But and why do- she doesn't trust any of the men to get involved, why she's so right. loath to have any men involved because she knows the power structures can't do anything that she's on her own. But go on. No, exactly. Um, so the deck sort of stacked against her. What she's trying to do is explain... <laughs> describe things to poor Mrs. Gross, who is her, you know, the, the housekeeper who is, you know, has to try to, you know, maintain order in this chaos that's building up. And she's like a very, she's a broadly drawn, illiterate simpleton. Yes. She's the worst character in the book, but she has to be there in some ways. She does. She does. She has to be sort of the, she represents sort of the bovine stupidity of cultural inertia Mm -hmm. in like human form. And the worst possible person to have to explain, and this is one of my favorite uh, sentences from the book, what, uh, when she sees Miss Jessel across the lake and she describes the situation as, nothing was more natural than that these things should be the other things they absolutely were not. Which is just a yeah. great Henry James, like, holy shit, I'm going to take apart the sentence and just set it into my brain. Um, but what's specifically saying is, you know, there is no way to describe this except to say, just forget everything you know about yeah. what reality is and what like your upbringing has taught you because this is something that I need to get underneath. But there's nothing there. It's just an impossible solution. There's an impossible situation to solve in any way. Yeah. Yes. And Mrs. Gross has the, the traditional, what are you talking about? These are just kids. They're just innocents. Mm-hmm. They're just kids. They're just innocents. Whatever happened doesn't matter. They're kids. They're innocent. And and one of the things I really love in the book, to me, the most impactful scene is they're going to church one day and Miles, who's gotten kicked out of school, sort of stops the governess before going into church and talks to her like a smooth talking old guy seduces a woman mm-hmm. and it's not overwritten. He's still very clearly a kid, but it resembles kids who have adults who have abused them in a way that's so eerie and so upsetting. If you're a survivor or know any survivors of abuse, that sort of, um, pantomime of adulthood that happens too early and the idea that his innocence is gone obviously it's been taken away that is what happens is that he's a premature adult just the way he refers to her as my dear all the time my dear and what if i appealed to my uncle surely he'd be able to solve this issue Mm -hmm. and the way he's trying to manipulate her through flirtation it's eerie it's so eerie and it's so unsettling. Um, and she's so upset she can't go into church. She feels like I can't go into church after this and goes home. Um, which I think is also true where she, the comfort of spirituality is no comfort in that. Right. She feels like the universe is set against her in some way. All she wants to do is be alone. It, it's it's a, interesting how... God does abandon her the way that I think of a lot of people feel the silence of God at key moments. That's also what this book is about in some ways is, is the sort of obdurate silence of God and trying to conjure up 
the strength of the spiritual and good within yourself, knowing that that's how you have to do it. That if you want to connect with God, you've got to dredge it up yourself and be unafraid in some way and how difficult that is and how trying to summon God into yourself sounds like something a crazy person does. That's what schizophrenics do is to feel like they are an instrument of God through whom God is speaking. And the, the zealousness with which she, you know, goes about trying to save these kids, this religious fervor that she goes into to, to save their souls from this wickedness is the absolute wrong way to go about it because she's trying to, she's of the opinion that they have this innocence locked away with them that's been taken away, that's been corrupted and taken over by these spirits and that she, when she exercises them, that they will return to that state of innocence. Yeah. And again, if you're going back to the abuse angle, the thing is like, you're not going to get over that. Like you just have to take the next step. You need, you yeah. need to become the person you have to deal with that and move away. You can't just erase that and go back to the way you were before it happened. Or, she believes that yeah. that's the way to do it. Or can you? That sort of thing is where can you draw the strength to deal with these things from, if not a transcendent supernatural strength? I think the book believes in that in some way. I find her compelling in a lot of ways because she's trying to get beyond herself to save them, Mm -hmm. you know, which is something that as a parent, you definitely feel with your own kids that if something terrible befalls them, there's like a supernatural well of strength you feel within yourself to draw from in some ways. And it, but it also looks nuts. And it also, you're threading the needle in some way between those two. And I think it, you're right that it's stacked against her and that it's a losing battle no matter what she does. Well, she ultimately and, loses. So yeah, it is a losing battle. <laughs> um, And it's sad too. My favorite scene in the book is when she's trying, she sees the spirit. Flora's like playing in a little tower down by the lake. She sees the spirit across from the lake. She's convinced Flora sees the spirit as well and won't admit it. Miss Gross comes down, doesn't see the spirit. And the governess is like, tell Mrs. Gross, you see the spirit right there. I know you see it. She's like, no, I don't see anything. No, I don't see anything. And she wants to be taken away from the governess. She says, get me away from her. And the governess is like, so you admit she's there and you want to be taken away from her. And Flora's like, no, her, you, you fucking crazy lady. I want to be fucking taken away from you. And her heart is ripped out in that moment. The poor governess suffers a lot of indignities like that in the story. Like when she decides she might leave, when she might go away and that she finally decides ultimately when she sees Miss Jessel's ghost in the classroom that she's got to go back and she's got to, be the one to save them. And when she Such comes back to them, scene. when Such she comes back, that's gorgeous. Scene. When she comes back to them, their response is like, oh, you're back. You know, it's yeah. not like, oh, thank God you didn't leave. You didn't abandon us. It's, oh, good. But it's also her when she sees the governess in the room and it's in like the makeshift school room. It's very much about her deciding I am defining myself as not her. Look how similar we are on the, uh, on the surface. This is both of our rooms. This is our shared space. And how am I going to decide to find myself from her? Well, Miss Jessel was somewhat of a victim of Peter Quint, but not really. She was also in cahoots in some way. And whatever she was supposed to be doing, she didn't save the kids. And I am going to save the kids. That is how I am different from Miss Jessel. That is why she is an evil spirit. And I will be a good uh, ghost when I am dead. 
but she uh, she doesn't think in those terms just for the just for the record she doesn't (laughs) think i'm going to be a good ghost when i'm dead i was sort of (laughs) um it's funny though when she her perception of the kids when she says uh uh, they're more than earthly beauty they're absolute unnatural goodness it's a game it's a policy and a fraud right that she thinks that it's this layer that these ghosts are putting in front of her because no child could possibly be that good and that nice yeah and at the end when she finally does confront miles and she has that moment where she thinks maybe I was wrong. And she says, for if he were innocent, what on earth was I? Yeah. It's you know just what horrible the kids that she, also, she yeah. realizes that, you know, she's not helping the situation that she drives uh, Flora out of her mind and that she ultimately is responsible for Miles' death in a way. Yeah. No, absolutely. That, that she's stressing them by trying to help them, which is something as an adult, you definitely feel when you're trying to intercede to be a positive impact on your child's life and you realize you're just fucking stressing them out. You know, yeah, I mean? I, oh, I've had my daughter push me away. Like when I'm trying to do, help do math. She wants me away. She's just like, Flora, go away. Get away from me. You're the problem. Yeah. You know, it's not my frustration. It's, it's not form. fractions. It's you, dad. You're I making fractions. Me, right. You're making me frustrated. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very similar. Very mm-hmm. similar to that. You know, the, the kids, the initial descriptions in this book reminded me of um, when they're describing Nepomuk in Dr. Faustus, who's like the son of the, of the main composer. Mm-hmm is just this beautiful little boy that everybody loves and he spreads joy everywhere he goes. And the narrator of the book meets him who's like this awkward nerd and says to him something like, well, how are you, little man? And Neponek just looks at him with like a look of sadness of like, you won't ever be able to get it, will you? Like how good I am and how I should make you comfortable and happy. There's something of that in Miles in the governess where Miles looks at her like, don't you get it? I'm a good guy. Even with the bad stuff, I am innocent. Something Mm -hmm. terrible has happened to me. There's something bad going on here, but you're never going to get it. You're never going to get that even innocence corrupted is still innocence. Yeah. And the scene where she finds him out, out, out of doors in the middle of the night. And she asks, why have you done this? And he says, I wanted you to see me be bad. It's almost like he's trying to like win her favor by proving that he's not this innocent boy that like, I, if, if what you're looking for in me is evil, I can, I can give you that. Yeah. And also that I could do this anytime I wanted. Don't you understand if I wanted to be bad, I could be bad constantly. Yeah. That it's easy. (laughs) You're a chump and I'm miles. I'm the smartest little boy in the world. I'm goddamn miles. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I blew out the candle because I'm the fucking man. Isn't that the exact quote? <laughs> Twas I who blew out the candle because I'm a naughty little boy. Is that, I took, that's, that's I took your letter, so what? Yeah, I burned the letter. <laughs> um, um, yeah, what else do we have to say about the novella? Well, we the novella we'll keep talking about as sure. I, I feel like we get into the books. I think the, the last thing to sort of as a bridge, we're going to wholesale talk about a lot of the adaptations. And most of the adaptations are uh, somewhere between half-assed and no-assed. Um, it's a very easy book to translate beat for beat. Because while the book is fairly long for a short story, um James's style extends every moment 
so there's not a lot of narrative beats because something that is a blip on screen will be four paragraphs in the book. So it's easy to take a script and get all of the important narrative action and every important scene because James's style expands on each moment uh, in a literary way. And in a complex language, it builds everything. So, uh, and I'm glad so you brought that up. Yeah, I have I have a list of the eight or nine story beats from the sto- from the novella. Oh, interesting. That that every movie hits it in, at some point or another. Um, so there's the interview with the guardian, right? That gets her the job. Yeah. There's the letter dismissing Miles from school. Uh, Peter Quint on the tower and at the window. Miss Jessel across the lake while uh, Flora makes a crude boat. This Flora is looking out the window at Miles walking outside at night, which she just discussed. The governess considering uh, leaving until she sees Miss Jessel in the classroom. Flora disappearing while Miles is playing the piano. The confrontation with Flora and the freak out in the storm. Mrs. Gross taking Flora away from Bly. And then, of course, finally, Miles and the governess having it out. The final appearance of Quint and Miles dying. Those are the yeah. beats that every adaptation uses. And there are also recurring added bits, most of which first appeared in The Innocents. Yes. At, which almost becomes, you know, gospel to use in them. So some of those are Flora psychically predicting Miles' return to Bly. Children playing a game, sometimes one that involves the governess being blindfolded, which is in fact the poster for the 2016 adaptation, Through the Shadow. Children put on a performance, a poetry recital, or a play or a magic show that's always morbid or creepy. Yeah, which is very, um, to me, that's... So the innocence, that's uh-huh. the moment that's like, that's what separates the innocence from turn of the screw to me. That, that little creep out scene where oh, they're sure. doing the like weirdo play. Yeah. Uh, making connections between Quint and the guardian uncle, creepy dolls, little animals, frogs, bugs, birds, yeah. and fish. All the adaptations love to have Flora carrying around turtles and toads and shit. Yep. Which is um, not in the book. Nope. Flashbacks to Quint being a horn dog, which interestingly is not part of the innocence, but was part of the original script. Apparently Harold Pinter read it and said, take that out. Don't have any flashbacks. Terrible idea. Most adaptations like the idea and use the flashbacks. Yeah. Um, Miles kissing the governess in a very unchildlike way. Which is, yeah, the most amazing, shocking, upsetting moment in the movie. That's like the best moment in the movie. It's so upsetting. It's so it's upsetting. Incredibly upsetting. And finally, yeah. Miles dying in a more conventional way, by i.e. drowning or falling from a height, his death being a little less mysterious than suddenly his heart, his heart stopping in her. Well, that's what happens in Innocence. What do you mean? She's just grasping him until he dies. Oh, you yeah. said most of oh, them no, are no. taken from most the- of them. Most of them change it up. So he oh, okay. falls or he drowns, something more explainable than he suddenly just I, I thought you said all of these additional beats are from The Innocence. Now I get what you're no, saying. No, 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 no. Some saying of them. that all of the adaptations have this. A lot of them were introduced by The Innocence, but yeah. This, is, yeah, this is just the overlay of all the adaptations. Yeah. But um, One thing I would also say a lot of the adaptations have in common that's from The Innocence is that Miles is sort of a creepy little shit from the start. He's not mm-hmm. terrible in the innocence, but he's unquestionably, ain't I a stinker? 
from moment one. Whereas yeah. in the book, he's so overwhelmingly sweet for so long that the idea that he's capable of doing something, of getting thrown out of the school, becomes more unsettling. It becomes a darker and darker feeling secret, the sweeter and sweeter Miles seems to be. The more unimpeachably innocent, unimpeachably innocent he is, the more sinister the overtones of his expulsion from school take. Most of the adaptations, Floor is sweet, and then Miles showed up, and he's a bit of a little like shit from the Yeah, school. you're right. He's a little bit more of a bad seat in most of the uh, adaptations. It, it, um, he's treated like, uh-oh, here comes trouble. That's what that moment of him coming home normally means. And, and casting the kid from Village of the Damned and the Innocents sort of <laughs> lays the groundwork for that a little yeah. bit. Uh, so let's talk about the innocence, which uh, I like to know. I also like to call it the wobble of the jello. <laughs> For um, that is another very disturbing moment towards the end where Miles taps a little mold of jello sitting between he and <laughs> and the governess, Miss Giddens, in this movie. And it is, this, this is a very Freudian take. It's so gross. It's so, <laughs> so gross. It feels Truman Capote wrote the uh, screenplay. And that feels like that's him understanding an exact it just has that feel of um what's the most sublimated expression of sexuality mm. i can think of that yeah. is unmistakable it has that a feel of somebody who has had to navigate being uh closeted and social mores um how sexuality can bleed through even when you're trying to conceal it it has that feel so much yeah, of, yeah. Of that. everything Just. everything but especially the icky pedophilic relationship between miss giddens and miles is really played up in this version especially as it gets near to the end yeah um i should but we should say the innocence is a masterpiece Yes, it, so it is. Um, it was incredible. better than I remembered it being, and I remembered it being phenomenal. Yeah, it's be beautifully directed, excellently written. It is gorgeous looking. It's shot phenomenal by phenomenal deep focus photography, widescreen deep so photography. It rivals Citizen Kane for foreground and background action staging. Yeah, it's beautifully composed, and it is a rare adaptation that take that really understands the source material, and what it adds to it really enhances those ideas yeah it reminds me of um we were just on on the the website talking about um wages of fear and the adaptation and there's a quote from the writer of wages of fear um george arnaud about adapting books which is let a director be given the literary property of his film not because as it's often said the camera has different needs than the pens but simply because to blossom, talent requires creativity, not servile imitation. And this feels like a great example of it knows when not to just be a servile imitation, which most of the adaptations are. Most mm -hmm. adaptations are just very servile beat-for-beat -beat adaptations, which makes them feel very half-assed, and particularly servile to the innocents. As you said, a lot of them feel much more like adaptations of the innocents than Turn of the Screw. Um, Absolutely. That's what, what this is. One thing I, I feel like uh, is maybe off track watching it again. I made a movie called The Burning Bride, and 
this movie, I realized what a huge influence it was on my film in a lot of ways. Just the way it opens, a lot of the way things are photographed and framed, the relationship of spirituality to sexuality. So much of my movie, I was trying to do an impression of this movie. And it shocked me to realize that. I didn't have that consciously in my mind when I was making my movie necessarily. One or two shots, I thought, oh, that's like The Innocents. But watching it this time, I really felt like I stole a ton straight up from this. <laughs> that's nice having that revelation after you see a great movie. Yeah. <clears throat> and realizing your influence on it. It's great. It should be noted real quick. This was not the first adaptation on screen. Uh, John Frankenheimer actually directed for television, like an hour long adaptation with uh, Ingrid Bergman playing the governess, which I have not seen the whole thing. I've only seen there's a, the ending is on YouTube, the very final ending. Yeah. It's what you would imagine, you know, Ingrid Bergman saying miles, you know, in the yeah. way that she, you imagine she would do. Um, it's, but it's very, it's very, it's very TV. It's, you know, one set, sort of one camera set up. Yeah. Um, this but, book, it's interesting, had a critical um, resurrection in the 50s, that mm -hmm. there was a, a lot of critics in the 50s found this story. And that's why the boom happens and why the innocence gets made is this suddenly becomes a, a seminal rediscovered text, uh, I think, for its psychological dimensions primarily is why. Yeah. Uh, it becomes such interesting ground to tread over. And it's got so many tricks of perspective. It's got so many tricks of and ambiguities in it that it's just something so rife to be pulled apart and analyzed that this critical boom happens. And from there on out, it's adapted constantly after the 50s. Yeah, there's the play adaptation called The Innocence, and then there's the Edmund Wilson deconstruction of Henry James's work that focuses heavily on the, uh, you know, is she crazy or are they real ghosts? Yeah. A lot of things at that time. Um, but talking about Capote, just adding things to really help you understand the themes of this story, having Mrs. Gross tell her, uh, if you were my age and had cared for as many children as I have, you'd know that waking a child can sometimes be worse than any bad dream. It's the yeah. shock and then being suddenly deprived really makes you understand the danger, the dangerous waters that Miss Giddens is getting into and trying yeah. to confront miles and tear him away from this thing that he is now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really, and then she by herself says to miles when she's trying to help him, she says she was raised to help people, even if they refuse my help, even if it hurts them sometimes that stubbornness of hers of like, I'm going to have my, you're going to be cured. I'm going to have my way. And that's the way it is. doesn't matter what happens to you is obviously, you know, not going to end well. Yeah. Um, I completely, uh, completely agree uh, with that, that this is an adaptation that understands the book so well and mm -hmm. understands what the repression and fantasy of the book is about. You know, what scene I really love in this too is when she, sees Miss Jessel in the schoolroom and goes over and there's the water on the chalkboard where Miss Jessel has been sitting. Yeah, and the it, tear. Yeah. yeah. Is it supposed to be at first you're like, is it water? Cause she's been with the lake. And then it's like, no, it's a tear. It's a real tear on there. Mm -hmm. And it's such an affecting tactile moment that as good as the scene is in the book, I feel like that scene specifically the touching of the tear in the movie is the best thing out of either the book or any of the adaptations. I love it so much that it feels so tactile and so haunting 
uh, to just make an emotion into a physical manifestation. That's what the book is about, right? Emotions mm-hmm. becoming physical manifestations. That it that's something that happens in the book, but it works so good in the movie. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a beautiful scene and another great interpretation of the text. By I'm going to say it's by Jack Clayton specifically, and not so much Capote. Is that yeah. every time they see the ghost, this this stillness, this quiet that suddenly oh. comes upon the scene. Um, the way Henry James describes it in the book is a strange dizzy lift or swim into a stillness, a pause of all life that had nothing to do with the more or less noise we at the moment might have engaged in making. And that I could hear through any intensified mirth or quickened recitation or louder strum of the piano. Then it was that the others, the outsiders were here. Oh, I mean, the way that that's, the way that that's realized in the movie is just, yeah, it makes you skin crawl. It's so gorgeous and haunting at the same time. It should also be mentioned, I think more than any movie, this movie invented the lexicon of ghost stories in cinema. Mm-hmm. That the way ghosts are filmed and realized on camera, this movie wrote that dictionary. And that especially in the last 30 years, I feel like ghost stories have been very indebted to this movie, whether they're aware of it or not, that um, a lot of the J horror in particular is shot Mm. like this movie with somebody very still in the distance, dark faces, obscured, obscured by dark hair, obscured by veils. If they move, it's an eerie slow movement. And this is, you can picture 20 films that I'm talking about in this. And it's all more than any other movie. You can watch The Old Haunting and see how it influences something. You can watch, I don't know, fucking 13 Ghosts and see how it influences (laughs) something. But this is the one, it feels as modern as ever. It feels completely unaged. It, It feels the ghost, it feels like a ghost. It feels like you're seeing something that's old that's still here and still modern. Yeah. In some way. One thing I love about this adaptation, too, is the controversial choice to make their young, so young and naive governess 40. That was great (laughs) that they cast Deborah Kerr, who's in her 40s, and everyone's still like, but you're far too young to be a nanny. I really appreciate that. I actually, I sound like I'm joking. I do. Uh, there's a there's a level on which I do appreciate. It's the inverse of normally you have like, you know, 55 year old Mark Wahlberg with the 25 year old girlfriend in a movie. Instead, it's like the woman who's supposed to be 20 is played by a 40 year old. I appreciate it. They oh, I pre- do too. I genuinely appreciate the change up, especially because Deborah Kerr is phenomenal in this movie. The whole cast is great. She phenomenal, is terrific. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and especially since a lot of the 20 some things who played this character <laughs> subsequently yeah. have been so fucking terrible. But yeah, we'll get to that. A lot of stinkers. A lot uh, of stinkers in this. A lot of bad Ms. Grosses. That's a tough part to cast. And you see it in virtually every adaptation is just taking a tough role and finding the bottom of mediocrity with it. Yeah, it's a tough It's a thankless role. So it's hard for people to, to yeah. really get the but, but Deborah Kerr has to carry it, and she does. Oh, absolutely. It's her she movie. She does. And she's yeah. obviously, you know, still phenomenally gorgeous and all that. I'm just joking around because the first time I watched it, I was like they keep calling her so young this is and she's 20 in the book like hasn't deborah kerr been acting for like 20 years at this point sure sure like aren't her first movies back in the 40s am i crazy am i remembering this wrong i went and looked it up i'm like yeah i'm not crazy she's in her 40s 
So the next movie we're going to talk so about. So moving on, Chris, from that. <laughs> Chris, uh, do not co-sign the sentiment by John Cribbs. So the next movie we're going to be talking about, uh, <laughs> moving 10 years to the future, is The Nightcomers, which I also like to call misgrossed out. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Michael Winner movie. This is a Michael Winner movie through Starring Marlon through. Brando, and it is a prequel about Peter Quint Miss Jessel, their sadomasochistic relationship, and the creepy peeper Miles uh, reenacting what he sees and the influence of uh, Peter Quint, slurry Irishman Peter Quint, slurry cartoon Irishman Peter Quint on his sister. And um, he's quite a loafer. He's a professional loafer. Professional loafer. <laughs> um, one, this movie is. Uh, easy to make fun of and make light of. It's also a very interesting movie that understands the book really, really well. This movie's entire purpose, and it's only 10 years after The Innocence, is to make the subtext explicit. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that's ideas. What if we made the subtext of The Innocence explicit? What does that look like? And it's got a very interesting script. Its main problem is that it is uh, made by Michael Winner. Michael Winner belongs to the tradition of creepy English fops in the arts, you know, like Ian Fleming rolled doll types who had these really gross personal lives, upper-class sleaze bags. Like, Michael Winner is in some way not the right person to critique any of this because you get the sense that he's into it. And in a way, he's the <laughs> perfect guy to do yeah. this. That's the thing about Michael Winner films, and I'm just going to get my personal take on Michael Winner out here for the record because yes. you, know, you know what it is. But uh, Michael Winner has made several movies where you want to take a shower after seeing it. Like there's yes. so there's sleaze dripping out of the, out, just off the screen, the death wish sequels, scream for help, dirty weekend. So many of these films are just, they are unapologetically sexist. They do not have leering. They do not leering. have sustainable ideas <laughs> about, you know, uh, uncomfortable scenes last two minutes too long. They're always the Billy Lurid films, but that's the Michael Winner thing. I think it's some sort of a warped Artur theory where it's like Michael Winner is going to do Michael Winner in every movie he makes. Yeah, and you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> here's the deal. Here's the deal with Michael Michael Winner. Um, I don't think he's an auteur because he's not in control of his movies. Mm. His movies are always out of control. And what you're saying is that's what makes him an auteur to you. And I can respect that. But to me, he's, he's not an auteur because he can't rein anybody in. Every actor is going to go off and do whatever they want. The script, if it has messy parts, he will not be able to get it under control. Scenes go from being too stylized to indifferently filmed. The pacing is always a mess. Um, the ideas come close to making a point, but the synapses don't touch mm -hmm. in them. What I always say is when you're getting into cult cinema, the test of whether you have taste or not is if you can resist think of Michael Winner as a good filmmaker. Now I say that as somebody who loves Michael Winner movies. But the <laughs> I, test say, I is, agree with you is if you can love them while respecting that they are not good and he is not a good filmmaker. 
And I feel like that's, that's my test. Cause I'm obsessed with the people who love every movie have as bad of, and think every movie is good, have as bad of taste as the people who are like, I don't watch old movies and subtitles are bad. Like if you, especially if you think everything in the Canon is great, you have terrible taste, you know? Mm, Sure. And I, you know, for me, winner is incredibly fascinating. Do not mistake that for being good. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Um, he even brags, you know, in the commentary for this film that when Brando came to him and said, I want to do this in an Irish accent, he was like, sure, go ahead, do it. And said, that's how you handle big stars. You let them do whatever the fuck they want, and then you'll have an easy production. And it's like, yeah, but that just makes you respect the directors who had to fight an actor like Marlon Brando to get yes. the performance they needed. Otherwise you're going to get him tr- getting drunk to do a monologue and loafing around in the oh grass and Ma- do with this terrible Brando, Irish accent. Brando is the original Nicolas Cage and that he consistently fills movies up with what the fuck gestures that are fascinating in isolation, but hurt the movie. Yes. That's he a good, is, that's a good the comparison. Original Nicolas Cage in that but, way where you're like, that's weird. I like that. You are fucking hurting this movie to like try and say boo-hoo in Vampire's Kiss. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You are, you are yeah. hurting the movie to actually be drunk during this monologue where you're doing your cartoon Irish accent. But I, you know, but I can't say he ruins this movie because how can I, how can I say that Marlon Brando put on a bad Irish accent acting like a weirdo ruins the movie. Missouri Breaks is one of my favorite films. No, I know. I know. I mean, <laughs> who doesn't want to see him? slap a donkey with a carrot that's the thing he's also like Nicolas Cage in that those what the fuck gestures are thrilling and exciting on their own because they are so weird and original and unexpected and inexplicable but but Um, the thing is one of the one of the first things that happens in Nightcomers Peter Quint uh, gives a cigar to a, a frog right yeah and the frog explodes from the cigar smoke and he explains to the kids who are watching he he uh, because he can't stop liking it he keeps on doing it yeah, and for me that just feels like that's me with Michael Winner right there. It's like, like the it, worst pairing, Winner and Brando. Just a, just a punishing uh, bliss. Is that a yeah. good way to describe it? A punishing bliss, Michael. Winner. You know what? You know what? I thought probably this a this movie is unquestionably a movie that the screenwriter went to like the premiere of it and just kept slinking down his seat and covering <laughs> his face more and more until by the end he has his like coat collar pulled over his head and he's watching through one finger it's just it's an interesting script that just gets (laughs) defiled by these guys (laughs) it's just there's a really interesting idea in there and a really erudite idea and a fairly well realized idea even the finished film is interesting even the finished film is very very interesting this is one of winner's most interesting movies yeah 100%. without question and this is one of brando's more interesting late career performances it's sort of pre-sages last tango in paris in a lot oh, of ways yeah it feels like a warm-up for that and I think too that it's it dives into that uh, subtext again that I said a lot of people don't really attack in the turn of the screw story, which is that what is the appropriate way to behave as an adult around kids? Yes. Do you, know, you have Mrs. Gross who won't even tell them that their parents are dead? Yeah. You know that she wants to maintain their innocence so much, or are you? You know, is the other extreme Peter Quint who tells them, you know, when you die, when there's you die, no heaven, there's dead. no hell, you just walk around, which basically incites them to spoiler for the end of the film. 
murder them. The kids murder yeah. Jessel and Quint, which is kind of a delicious turn of events, if you ask yes. me. Yes, and script and character-wise, that he's not just a um, uh, pedophile creep rapist. He's a much he's not more just an awful guy. He's just sort of a. He's a guy who doesn't guy. understand <laughs> the effect he's having on the kids. Yes, exactly. He doesn't have a respect for how they will imitate him, and his words will get interpreted through the prism of naivete. In the book, Peter Quint reminds me, and how he's described, and in the movie of Joseph the groom, um, groom groundsman from Diary of a Chambermaid, specifically the Diary of a Chambermaid book, that he's sort of a malevolent underclass force who represents the inherent criminality of the lower class in in the book that he's somebody who takes women by the fistful and they're swept up in it because it's so masculine and brute and base. Well, the the debasement of Miss Jessel in this movie is really interesting because he's really bringing her down to his level to have what he considers a love relationship with her. And then when she decides, she misinterprets and says, okay, I'm willing to go to your shitty shack and fuck you. That's like the deepest insult ever to actually like bring that out into the open and say, okay, I'm willing to be a piece of shit like you are. Yeah. It's funny too. This, this movie must've been such an easy pitch to Brando, like Michael Winter being like, so you'll be playing a ghost rapist. (laughs) <laughs> he's just like, I only do it if the character can rape ghosts. Whatever you want to do, Brando. <laughs> just seems like the easiest pitch you could make to him. Just yeah. like, uh, um, he's, he's a real gross guy. <laughs> so anyway, I really do like this movie. Um, I, I like it a lot. Uh, too, and all, it's a mess. I'm going to say, yeah, it's, 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 a per, it's a kind of a perfect mess in a way. I'm yeah. going to say three things this movie gets wrong, though they're inexcusable if you're a fan of Turn of the Screw. You ready? Yeah. Quint is constantly wearing a hat. <laughs> he's also as wearing we all know, trousers, which is from the book. But we all, as we all know in the book, he's described as hatless, repeat hatless. Yes. <laughs> Repeatedly Such described as hatless. And in fact, when he's describing her to Miss Gross, one of the things that makes it click is like, was he wearing a hat? Absolutely not. Exactly. He's a blaggard. You're describing Mr. Quint. He's not a gentleman. He's a blaggard. He doesn't wear a hat. Um, there's even a scene where they set up this giant kite that they're going to go fly. Yeah. My- Miles grabs onto. Quint puts his hat, Brenda puts his hat on top of the kite. And I hadn't thought of, oh, that's how he loses his hat. But then, <laughs> but then he grabs it right before the kite takes off. I was like, no. And he's like, this hat is the most important thing. Uh, so yeah, he tomorrow May. He does, he does dress in the master's clothes, that's true, but he's not a redhead. As not a redhead. And number three, what's the big problem with the ending, Chris, when they bring the governess in it for a little cameo at the end? What's the big problem there? Uh, what, what? What's the problem? Why is Miles there? He's supposed to be at school. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good point. Also, the kids are about 10 years older than they are in the book each. Not that much older, especially after you see this next one we're going to talk about, which is the Dan Curtis. Yeah, well, I don't want to move off this one yet. Oh, you're not Uh, done with it yet? Okay. No, there's something that I really like about this movie that I think is really interesting about it. Okay. Um, Especially because the the sexuality of Turn and Screw and the Innocence is subtext, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times that just gets interpreted straight up as like Peter Quint 
is a, uh, a child molester or a rapist of some description. This movie's take on it is fascinating because it's, and Miss Jessel's relationship to Peter Quint in particular in the book is sort of like he was a brute, but she was taken by it in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, the, the governess sort of says, well, then she must have been like him. And it's all subtext. It's all sublimated. This movie explores a BDSM dynamic existing in a culture that has a total inability to articulate it which is really fascinating to say that these characters, uh, that this is not about uh, villain and victim in the movie. It's about what if the play acting of villain and victim, the play acting of cruelty and sadism between two people, between two consenting adults in a culture that has no ability to articulate this dynamic and the sexual thrills of this dynamic and the connections of this dynamic. And then particular when kids then witness this dynamic between adults in charge of them and try and interpret it and reintegrate it into their own lives. Yeah. And it it is established in this, that miles sneaks up like to a window to watch this. It's not like they're doing it in front of them on purpose. Yeah. It's not done. They're not using rooms uh, used by daylight as if they were dark woods, as they say in the innocence. Um, And then he tries to repeat it with his sister who doesn't understand what it is. And he doesn't understand what it is other than this is something adults do to each other Mm -hmm. in some way. And it's thrilling to him in some way. It's a movie that's directly about what makes good kids into bad kids Mm. and how you transform an innocent into a corrupted person and how sort of as a rebuke to James that it doesn't have to be evil to do it yeah that it doesn't have to be explicitly evil to make good kids into bad ones which is really chilling which is really complicated idea but again the the sadomasochistic dynamic is interesting in that context as well of um sadism and cruelty as a dynamic of connection and an expression of love and connection in some ways, uh, mm. which is laying uh, the ideas of the book and especially the Innocence movie on its head in a lot of ways. And I think that's really fascinating. Again, I think this is a really good, well-informed script. Um, it recognizes that you have to solve the problem of Mrs. Gross and making her the problem and antagonist in the movie is interesting. Uh, it's I think trying to, again, trying to make explicit subtextual elements of the novella of the idea that she represents a cultural inertia that doesn't want to deal with human emotion and human sexuality and that kids aren't innocents, that they're people and they're going to try and interpret the world too. And they have a capacity to take on and absorb the world around them. And she doesn't want to deal with it. She's essentially like the solution to this problem is for you guys to stop being people right? and to stop having emotions and stop having uh, sexualities. And that's the Victorian solution to the problem incidentally that she feels like making her an antagonist is in some ways making Henry James, the antagonist. Huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
unfortunately, I think some adaptations that come in the wake are just like, oh yeah, that'd be good. She should just be a villain. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, but for the next one... Sign or co-sign? No, go on. <laughs> for this next one, though, did you watch it, the Dan Curtis version? Uh, is that the Patsy Kensett? No, 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 no. This is 1974. This is Lynn Redgrave. No, I rewatched Innocence, Nightcomers, and then The Turning. Those are the okay. only ones I rewatched all the I'll way. I watched the ones, some of the right. Patsy Kensett. I'll go through the other ones just briefly. Yeah. Um, so this one obviously comes just after The Nightcomers. Uh, I Dan- did read Mysteries of Udolpho, though, as much as I could have been. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just a book referenced in it. It's just a refer- book referenced in it that you think is going to be a ghost story because the main narrator is like, it's very Mysteries of Udolpho, what happens? And then immediately Udolpho's like contending. They're fake ghosts. Yes. Yeah, no, they're fake ghosts in Udolpho, right? Yes, that yeah. the main character is uh, well, I think the contending reason- with brigands. They're like, hey, wait, I've been misled here. I think the reason Henry James introduces it, especially as something that it's a reference that the governess is making, is that she has interest in gothic stories and flights of fancy. You know, yeah. she is she likes a good story, and so that you know might yeah. inform her creating this narrative that isn't actually happening. I will say, I didn't do my research. I did not read the Janeway Lambda One Hollow novel. I did not do that. No. No. Well, then this whole thing's been a farce. I did not, <clears throat> did not read the hollow novel that Captain Jane Away is seen interacting with in the hollow deck. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> That's Voyager. Turn of the screw. <laughs> uh, it is. I, there's a lot of things that are influenced by Turn of the Screw, clearly. The others, obviously, was somebody yeah. read Turn of the Screw and said, what if they were the ghosts? And that became the others. Yeah. Um, let me talk about this Dan Curtis version real quick. Dan Curtis, of course, is the man behind Dark uh, Shadows. Uh, he made one of my favorite horror films, Burnt Offerings. Uh, yeah. And this is uh, actually scripted by the guy who adapted Burnt Offerings for him, William F. Uh, Nolan. It's got Lynn Redgrave as Miss Jane Cumberly, And it's actually the same actress who played Mrs. Gross in The Innocence. Megs Jenkins plays her again in this. Interesting. Uh, it is interesting. Um, this like dark shadows comes off like a really cheap high school play. I mean, this Bly has like pink and purple walls. I mean, it looks really cheap, but the most stunning thing about it is that the miles in this one is like a six foot redhead, long haired guy. I have seen this one. Wait, it's all coming back. Yeah. I have who, seen this who, one. Who, get, who is intimidating, not because of the things he says, but because he looks like he could push her over at any point. Yes, yeah, he has like a right weird um, son from the, you know, uh, Henry Gibson's son in the vibe, Burbs vibe. He has a very Courtney Gaines vibe is yes. what he has. Yes. Um, yeah, and he's got a very high-pitched voice. So he's Is that says, Peter Quint? Yes, came with the frame. Did I do something wicked by Dale? <laughs> um, and that really dominates this version. It's hard to focus on anything else. Um, it does employ heavy voiceover uh, from Lynn Redgrave. There's an interesting implication that Jessel actually murdered Quint out of jealousy, and then later she shot herself in the town. Um, and then, like what I was saying before, that Miles actually falls to his death at the end because Quint does a little trick on her. She uh, Miles definitely sees it. There's no ambiguity to this. She passes Peter Quint at one point. She does not see him, but we do. 
and Miles definitely sees him at the end of the movie because he runs towards him down the staircase. And yeah. after he's broken from the spell, he runs to her and gives her a big kiss. And then she sees that it's Quint. She pushes him off the stairs and that's how he dies. So again, it's very stagey. It's like the longest one. I think it's almost two hours long. And there, there definitely are interesting ideas in this, but because of the kind of cheapness of the production, it's just the anti-innocence in pretty much every way you can imagine. Yeah. So, and again, and it's, and it's again, a lot of the problem with the adaptations of it are, is that this is a rich Gothic novel and your style has to match the mm-hmm. story. Absolutely. You have to get it that high up and just stealing the theme from Phantasm ain't going to cut it. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, but some interesting stuff thrown in, like uh, she points out that Flora's needlework is too good for a child. It's Miss Jessel's needlework. <laughs> Um, there's some nice things like that. There's, uh, the, the poetry recital in this one is, uh, a poem called the, the gift eternal. It's a really effective kind of creepy poem about death. And again, there's, there's a lot of neat things thrown in, but it's hard. Oh, to... we should mention the original song written for the innocents, which is an amazing song. The under yeah. the willow. Yeah. Great. Again, so good of the tone that, that if you're not willing to write a, uh, a lullaby-esque, creepy song for your movie. Don't do Turn of the Screw. Yes. Um, I'm going gonna, gonna to really quick move on to the next version I want to talk about, which I, you probably haven't seen, but it's got to get mentioned. You've got to hear about this, Chris. It's uh, from 1989. It was yeah. part of a series called Nightmare Classics, which was produced by Shelley Duvall after her... I, I love it already. Fairy Tales uh, and her... Um, Whoa, Really? Yeah, they did a one-season series of Nightmare Classics where they adapted famous horror stories. For I've heard of this zero percent. I had not either until like the last minute before we uh, were ready to record this. So I watched it. Amy Irving plays the governess. She's not the first American. I believe um, Valerie Bertinelli played her in the mid-'80s. But um, Balthazar Getty plays Miles, young Balthazar Getty. Does not even try to do an accent. It's just really? Balthazar Getty. Uh, and David Hemmings plays the guardian who here is called Mr. Harley. Cause I guess he lives on Harley street in the novella, but um, he is by far the skeeziest guardian ever Ooh. depicted. He is just disgusting. He flat out tells her, maybe I should just keep you here so I could fuck you basically. <laughs> I mean, he's awful, but get this, this is the, here's, here's the thing about this one. Ready? It's a revenge story. Oh, how so? How so? Because, uh, Harley and Quint were friends. But, yeah. But Quint uh, beat an aristocrat to death in a bar. And Harley <laughs> Harley testified against him and got him hung. Oh, so it's a Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear kind of situation. It's exactly it. <laughs> that's what it is. So that's why Quint and Miss Jessel, who killed herself after right after the hanging, are back to get revenge on this family. You'll be glad to hear David Hemmings comes to Bly. The Guardian yes. comes to Bly. At one on what, at what point in David Hemmings' career is this? How, how rate it in donuts? Does he look um, like he's eaten one donut that day or 25 that day? He's definitely had a few eclairs, I would say. <laughs> yeah, rating it in eclairs sounds better. <laughs> he looks like he'd float. Is it he, one eclair a day, David Hemmings, or is it 15 a day, David Hemmings? He'd look like he'd effortlessly float in a pool for sure. <laughs> Um, and you might want to cling on to him if you don't know how to swim. Um, no, it's ridiculous. It's that uh, he, uh, she, the governess has seen all of his 
rich pornographic art strewn yeah. across Bly and demanded it be taken down. It's too too gross for the kids. Yeah. He arrives at Bly after getting her letter and he says, where's all my art? Put it all back up. Put my porno back up on the walls. <laughs> and then he gets killed. They That's... find him hanging from a tree. Quint killed him. When we make our adaptation, it's going to be called Put My Porno Back. Because that's the other thing, is all of these movies want to change the title of it, too. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, is none of, so few of them just want to be the turn of the screw. They always want to give it, like, attenuated or slightly changed titles. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, I was just, I couldn't believe the direction this one ended up going in. Um, Miles ends up charging at Quint's ghost, and once again falls to his death. And they're like holding floor up by her. It's death. It's very <laughs> chilling that he dies of a heart attack. It's really it's chilling. Of course, it's the most chilling death, I think. Because ever. she's holding him close to him. She's clothing, holding him close to her. And she thinks she's defeated the spirits and only to find there's a lifeless body in her hands. It's so tactile and chilling to be holding someone and feel like your love has redeemed them, this loving embrace to, and finding they're dead. It's chilling. It's, it's amazingly chilling. Incredibly so. That's what I'm saying. It's like you're worried about viewers not getting it. That's that's the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, this has got uh, this. This version has Balthazar Getty saying, "I dismiss you. Long live the master of Bly after the uncle dies." <laughs> <laughs> really? It's got stuff like that. It's but I will say Amy Irving, she's pretty good at it. So Her this is, is pretty good. I so this one watching. is a slam dunk. It's Slam Dunkaroo is what I'm hearing. It's ridiculous on its ear, but I kind of enjoyed it. It's only an hour long, so you can't get tripped up. Um, next one, Turn of the Screw from 1992. This is the Patsy Kensett version. Yes, which I have seen. Yep. I'm a huge fan of this one. This one really? is not afraid. Yeah, because it's not afraid to be as, you know, goofy and early 90s. As Like, there's yeah. so many frilly shirts in this. Like the budget, like half the budget. Was and this is the one with, with Stephanie Audran as Mrs. Audran plays yeah. Mrs. Gross. Yeah. And it's the only one to employ the, uh, the framing narrative. It has Marianne Faithful at uh, some kind of a sanitarium at the beginning. Yeah. She's, she's reading the story. So we don't get to see uh, poor Douglas. But this it, one feels like, to me like it influenced the one we'll see you talk about last, which is the turning. Yeah. It feels like they didn't read the book and maybe somebody involved saw this version at some point. Mm-hmm. Like but somebody in high school watched this version to write a report on it and then decided <laughs> they were qualified to make it into a feature film. Yeah, I would, I would bet you're right. But we've got sleazy uh, Julian Sands playing the uncle, which is great. There's clearly a Ken Russell influence on this one, I think. Mm-hmm. There's, that and seems fair. There's some Evil style, Evil Dead style camera work, you know, some tracking shots. It's just, there's some Meyer esque production design. There's some fun stuff in this. So I don't, th- I mean, I don't think that this stands up to you know the innocence at all. But it, it does end correctly. He does die in her arms. I mean, it has the basic idea, right? This is the one when I was saying that they're half-assed, I was thinking of that they just go and hit the beats. Yeah. You know, that this is the one I was thinking of that's just, it just hits the beats of the story and that's it. Half of it is fever dreams of like Peter Quint rising from a pool of milk. You know, it's so Lair of the White Worm-esque in that way. Yeah. But I really do. I mean, of course, I love Stephanie Audren in, in general. But yeah. I like her you take on Patsy Mrs. Gross in this. In general as well. I love Patsy Kenson in general, and she is totally fine in this film. 
Um, this is it's fun. I like this one. This is certainly the first one I ever saw. Thanks to Patsy Kensett. Yeah. Kids who saw Lethal Weapon 2 said, I got to go check out this movie at the turn of the Yeah, screen. they said, I got to buy some big audio Dynamite albums. <laughs> they came home from Blockbuster with Turn of the Screw and Angels and Insects in their back. <laughs> I definitely rented Angels and Insects for Patsy Kensett-related reasons. So this one's a guilty, I call this one a guilty pleasure for me, for sure. That seems um, fair. There's some fun stuff. Uh, there's a great, also, there's a great Simpsons shining moment when in the classroom when she sees Jessel's ghost and it says save me all over the walls and they do this 360 pan across her yeah. it totally influenced that moment from the simpsons uh shining parody more so than the shining yeah. uh there are two versions i have not seen uh both made in 1999 one of them was a spanish u.s co-production with sadie frost who if you remember they tried to make happen for a while yeah uh and harvey keitel plays the master that's the reason i want to see that one yeah uh, it's, the, just, it's just a ghost. <laughs> blah blah. Don't want to be bothered. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, there is. Said, a, are they real? And I said, I don't know, but it'd be funny if they were. <laughs> and Lauren Bacall playing, I'm guessing, the Mrs. Gross character. Uh, the Tour of the Screw, uh, 1999, stars Jody May from Last of the Mohicans, and appropriately enough, Colin Firth, the yeah. famous Darcy as the master. Yeah. Uh, that I one is. Think. That one is interesting because the scene I have seen is where she races to the window to see Peter Quint and she runs outside and she's kind of standing out there. And then Mrs. Gross comes and sees her outside. That's another uh, thing that the movies invented that pops up in a ton of them, including no, the, no, one, no. the Nightmare in, Classics. Well, he sees him through the window, goes outside and he's not there. And then Mrs. Gross sees her and is startled. Yes, you're right. You're in right. The same way she's startled. Yeah. And she waits for Mrs. Gross to go outside and she doesn't. She has to go back in. That's actually a moment I love in the book. And they all, they all kind of fuck it up in the yeah. book is maybe yeah. what it is. Is that in the book, it's very, it's eerie because Mrs. Gross repeats what she just did, only she's standing in the place of the ghost now and scares Mrs. Gross. Right. Okay. So, yes. But almost shot for shot. That's what I'm trying to say on these. Yeah. Um, the, the next three versions, I, I would say, are definitely the three worst versions. They've gotten steadily worse since then. The first one is a movie called In a Dark Place from 2006. This is a modern take on it starring Lily Sobieski yeah. uh, as it's, the governess. It's extremely it bad. Leans, goes all in on the sexual assault angle to the point that 50 minutes into the movie, they just put all their cards on the table. She's like, I was molested when I was a kid and they've obviously been molested. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. This could, this movie <laughs> be any less subtle than anything, yeah. let alone and, turn and, of the and, screw. Um, and tasteless. It feels like, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It's because bad. it has a predatory lesbian, Mrs. Gross. And because Lily Sobieski takes Three baths in this movie. Three bath scenes. And I'm warning you, there is a Jennifer 8 alarm butt double. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, they set up early that Flora is asthmatic. And I wonder if they're going to pull a Pet Cemetery remake where she dies instead of Miles at the end. But yeah. that goes yeah. nowhere. Um, yeah, it's it's very tasteless. I agree. It, um, yeah. It's no one of the, that, I think that's the best thing the the clearest not best thing that can be the clearest uh, illustration of what you're talking about is it's a movie that decides to make a child abuse subplot explicit 
and adds gratuitous nude scenes. Yes. That's that's the level of taste we're dealing with here. Yeah, when it's revealed that uh, Mrs. Gross had a, was in love with Miss Jessel and that Quint was kind of in her way, so that when she sees Miss Jessel out on the lake, when uh, Lily Sobieski sees Miss Jessel, it cuts between that and the actress playing Mrs. Gross writhing on the bed, pulling her clothes off, basically masturbating while this is happening. And you're like, what the hell is going on? It's interesting. Now there's actually a pattern emerging with Patsy Kinsett, Sadie Frost, Lily Sobieski, young blonde actresses that they're really trying to make happen and it's not working, they put in turn of the screws. <laughs> right? Could be. I mean, Jody May might fall into that too. I don't know. They really couldn't make Jody May happen. It's yes, possible. It's um, true. I, I got some news. I don't think Mackenzie Davis is happening either. I don't think, I don't think she is. <laughs> uh, then we get to the BBC version from 2009, which you think, oh, BBC, classy, English. <laughs> they're going to get it right. Oh my God! Do they fumble everything about this? I haven't seen story. this one. It's who's the star? Truly awful. It stars Michelle Dockery playing Anne. There's a framing device with her in an asylum. Yeah. Which on its face is ridiculous because she's been arrested for Miles's death. How are they going to convict her of a kid who has a heart attack? What? And she's being followed by a priest. Like, listen. The UK criminal justice system needs reforms, John. This is just this movie proves. Obviously, but let me try. Let me let me think of some of the worst things about this film. It steals the music from Phantasm. That's one thing. Uh, unbelievable! They just whipped, just stole it. The theme, Swipe right from it, it, straight up. Just unbelievable. I couldn't believe it when you played that clip for me. I was like, "That's incredible." It, it boggles it feels, my mind. Yeah, it um, feels like how you could you do that? But I guess you know. Friday 13th steals the <laughs> Halloween. So it sets her up as being, have happened. It sets her up as being completely obsessed, not only like attracted, but obsessed with the guardian so that she like sees images of him arriving at Bly saying, I told you I'd come if you did well. It's ridiculous. Uh, there's a part where he's, she's talking to him and he says, uh, well, I may need Bly when I marry. And there's some sound effect that goes bing. And she like brightens up. <laughs> it's, wow. It's full of stuff like this, but the best, the very best shot that will just make you fall off your chair laughing is they have constant flashbacks of Quint raping every maid in the house, not just yeah. Miss Jessel, but just going like a like an unleashed dog, just going from room to room, brutalizing everybody. They show him banging Miss Jessel on the bed, cuts over to Miles sitting there watching them with booze and a cigar in his hand, like nodding appreciatively. Yeah. That's the kind of movie this is. That doesn't sound great. It's it's unbelievably bad. It's completely tone deaf, and all the decisions they make are bad ones. Although, I guess if you've seen uh, the recent Dracula or Sherlock or any of the kind of shit that uh, BBC's putting out lately, it's like, yeah, your fresh takes on these are fucking horrible and completely miss the point of the original work. This is sort of an early version of that. But let's move on, Chris, to the movie that we both endured together. Yeah, this movie is the reason we did this episode, basically, is there was a new adaptation of Turn of the Screw that was out. And we said, we'll go see it. We'll read this book we love again. And we'll talk about the new movie. And we'll talk about a a lot of the adaptations of it, as many as we can see, or maybe just the big ones in my case. And um, it's called The Turning. 
no screwing, just turning. And it's, uh, it's unbelievable how bad this movie is. Every single change that it makes to the story is for the worse. Um, I would argue that it does not tell a coherent story. <laughs> no, the, the last 10 minutes of this movie, I'm not even sure what it was getting at. Um, but the basic setup is there. It updates it. It doesn't modernize it. It sets it. It takes place two days after Kurt Cobain's suicide. So we've got the first grunge turn of the screw very pointedly. And it's a great scene where the characters do that movie thing of it starts on a TV news program explaining a big event. And then the two characters who are standing by the TV who have been silently watching turn it off and start talking mid-sentence as though they weren't watching the TV or involved in the conversation beforehand. I guess they were just standing there in silence, ignoring the talk about Kurt Cobain's suicide uh, so then they can talk about something else. Uh, it's, it's terrible. It's directed by a director uh, named Floria Sigismondi, Sigismondi <laughs> who only, the only feature film she's done is that terrible Runaways movie. Um, the actress, the lead actress is like, you described it as, it, you know, if Emily Blunt was an alien resurrection and walked into the lab where there's a bunch of failed Emily Blunts, they pulled Mackenzie Davis out of one of those tubes and set her to star in this. Floating upside down in one of the two clones. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's most basic idea is like turn of the screw in the grunge era, but, but nothing beyond that. And it's like a fashion grunge person. I don't even understand what the fucking idea of setting it in that era is other than like a vague gesture towards style. But the craziest thing about this movie is I was listening to the songs on the soundtrack and I was like, I've never heard any of these songs. And you and I were definitely teenagers during the grunge era. It was like, this all sounds like terrible knockoff grunge like i don't understand what this music is and even though it's set uh back in is it 94 when kerbane killed himself right i don't know i'm asking you i'm yes, not a fan of that shit um it's all like modern new grunge bands like fake grunge bands from like 2014 is when they put out their albums. But just in this movie for like window dressing, she puts on her like tape of some band that came out last year. It's, I don't understand why it made that change. That's one of like the many irritating changes about it. This it does not sound like toadies at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It should be playing. Do you want to die? Um, I will yeah. say here's the one positive take, right? No, I'm it's, not willing to accept any positivity about this. Well, movie. it's a, I, I've set up a joke. The one okay. positive take is yes. that it's the first adaptation of Turning the Screw to have a non-white character who that is, is cast true. as the useless college roommate she calls when she's feeling sad. Yes, the ethnically indeterminate roommate who's there, so the movie is not all white. It's Mrs. Groves is ludicrous. She's like uh, made up in like fright wigs and, you know, corpse makeup. She looks like Frank Reynolds holding a beauty pageant. Right. She's not the sympathetic, she's not the sympathetic confidant. She's more like an evil bitch like Billy Whitelaw in The Omen or something. Yeah. And also when you were talking about The Shining nod earlier in another one, it has to be said, here in 2020, 
if you put Shining references in your horror movie, you are a fucking hack. You well, are even the title. They're fucking clearly, hack. They're clearly chasing that Stephen King money by turning the turn of the screw into the turning. Yes, and it's like it's got a hedge maze, and he's bouncing a tennis ball. The new Miles, who's played by Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things fame, in the and hallway it, he when was he's in it. He's in it. No, just the Shining references in this movie and the shot of the car trailing on the road coming out to the estate. There's just a bunch of Shining references in this movie and it's fucking hack work. It's hack from beginning. Total fucking hack work. No, Shining references... It is not interesting. Everyone has seen these references. It is not a signal of your good taste and I and something to flavor your film for aficionados. It is pure cheap hack work. And I would say too, it's the the references of The Shining actually seem brilliant compared to the other quote unquote original hack work from this. Yes. There's a part of the house to avoid. There's a yeah. disembodied hand for no reason. There's a creepy mannequin There's a crazy for no goddamn reason. Yeah, the creepy mannequin is the dumbest part. A mother who's in a an empty swimming pool doing artwork like she thinks she's uh, from three women or something. It's <laughs> it's awful. And it's played by Jolie Richardson who has done uh, a Henry James adaptation before called Under Heaven, which is a very underseen version of Wings of the Dove. Yeah, I guess she's just trying to break into that Henry James circle and keeps keeps failing miserably. Yeah, uh, it's not the turn of the screw. There's no guardian. There's no ambiguity about Miles being expelled from school. They say he beat up another kid because he was bad mouthing his dad or something. Yeah, and if you're going to update the turn of the screw, you can't have him get expelled with a phone call to the governess. I mean, Jesus, there's got to be like some kind of a trial type, you know, process here, it's, even it's, if it's a private school. I don't know. It's, it's just... also the main problem is that the governess has no reason to stay. She's not, not a, a governess. She's like a teacher who's going to be a private tutor. She's leaving. Smart Apparently, teacher. has a job in a in a private in a public school. She's leaving to be a teacher to the younger kid, and then the older one gets thrown out. He's now a teenager, which again, uh, having him be sleazy is less unsettling. He's just like a shithead teenager. It does the thing that all of them get wrong of making the kids evil from the start, overtly evil from the start. Mm-hmm. But she can just leave. When she calls her friend midway through and is like, I'm really miserable here. I think it's haunted. The kids hate me. Uh, the only other adult here um, is an insane creep. Is a ghoul. <laughs> yes. Um, why she the has left. Like, the, she's left the house at that point. Yeah, she's calling she's for like the payphone. town. And she's no reason like, for her to go back. And the little girl has said to her, Floria said, Well, everybody leaves. And she's like, uh, I told that little girl I wouldn't leave. And it makes no sense for her to stay whatsoever. It makes literally no sense. She's not trying to solve the mystery. She's not seeing ghosts in a tangible way. She's just sort of seeing apparitions that aren't really tied to anything. At one point, she discovers the former. Uh, governess has died by falling in a lake and finding her body. It, it's yeah. it, this movie is profoundly idiotic. It pulls a, it was all a dream slash premonition at the end that has you going, oh my god, no! There's another twenty minutes in this movie, only to abruptly end on another dream sequence of indeterminate meaning and purpose. It is 
every bad decision it could make, it makes. It's if you try to make a worse movie than this, that is a fully funded studio picture, you could not. I told my wife, after seeing the 2009 BBC version, I told my wife, the turning would really have to like go out of its way to be worse than this. And it more than succeeded at that. Reading about the production of this, everything makes a lot more sense. This was originally a Spielberg produced film called Haunted. Yeah. It's going to be directed by Juan Carlos. Um, that Preston sounds Villa. like a parody movie though. Haunted with an exclamation point. You have like Cedric the Entertainer and there's like a ghost coming out of his butt. Yeah, but like Alfre Woodard was going to be in yeah. it. It sounded like it was definitely oh, a really? affair. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it was definitely going to try to do like a, a, a genuine turn of the screw adaptation. And then it got, the plug got pulled like days before production started. They lost like $5 million on it. So they still spent $14 million dollars on this fucking thing. I, it up. I, but it's totally the kind of thing that got like scraped together of like, well, we got the sets, we got everything, you know, we got to just do a movie. Let's just yeah. get some people together and just do a movie. And this is what happened. <laughs> yeah. This, that this that makes sense. It feels also like this movie feels like the people making it were like, yo, I noticed this crazy subtext like in the book that there's like sexual subtext. And you're like, yeah, no shit. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, it's I, a movie that it thinks it's discovering like it's about how trauma is passed on. I totally, my eagle eye reader noticed this. Yeah, yeah, but you could accuse half of the adaptations of that. I think that this movie most of them even, are bad. Doesn't even deserve like that level of consideration. Like it just it falls apart so amazingly. Completely. This movie feels like it was made by idiots in a way that very few movies do. You know what this movie is? What? This is the movie version of Peter Quint. That cad <laughs> just ruining everything that he touches. And it's weird. Um, the the two who wrote it are like uh, the they're the, the Conjuring guys. Yeah, the Hayes brothers. They've written a lot of like horror movies that are fine. You know, they've written some that are terrible too. But they're they wrote the Conjuring's. They wrote the 2005 House of Wax. They wrote the extremely awful The Reaping with Hilary Swank. Do you remember that movie? I do. And this movie is worse than The Reaping somehow, which is another fake smart, incredibly idiotic movie that that for some reason thinks it's going to be able to handle complex and intelligent material and just makes the dumbest freaking thing in the world. It's, it's I, I haven't had as much contempt for a film as this movie in a very long time. I know it's so not fun. You know, I really wanted to find something to talk about about this movie doing this podcast. I didn't want to just dump on it, but this movie is just it, so everything is dumb. You know what? Confident. There's a terrible scene where Flora refuses to leave the uh, estate for some reason. That's never explained. I guess the ghosts are telling her they're going to kill her if she leaves or something. Again, it's it's one of those things where uh, are the ghosts real or not? It's it doesn't. Uh, even seem to consider that's a question that might be interesting to explore. It's like, of course the ghosts are real. 
Um, and it's just about her, whether she thinks they're real or not, or something like that. But they put this little, whether she's crazy or not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to make her imagine the whole thing to just go into town and the little girl doesn't want to leave and the main character puts on this fake grunge music that's like this horrible downbeat dirge it's like you know this little girl is scared and then the soundtrack is just the worst droning uh fake riot girl nonsense you've ever heard and it's one of those things where it doesn't seem to have an idea in its head like why is uh knowing there's going to be trouble she making the atmosphere miserable it's one of those movies that just doesn't have any thought in its head except for the emptiness of style you know and at the end when when it it comes down to kids get in the car we got to get out of here yeah she they they quote uh in the mouth of madness the little girl says he won't let me leave right yeah i thought that was going to be a setup to like they drive out of the gate and get through the gate and then they come up to the gate again and then it's this loop where they can't yeah. get out and it's not even that like they can't even successfully rip off a great movie no it's just like push the gate opener faster it's yeah one of those yeah. scary things like push open it push the button quicker oh it's, is it gonna get open quick enough and for the same reason it obviously can't translate Henry james yeah even. and it turns mrs jessel into like a pure victim who's like a oh, help me i was killed ghost yeah you know? and quint is like you know they made they turned him into like the grunge quint he's got like the evan dando bangs and handsomeness you know and his he's appearance at the like end is a, like a it's like a twist that doesn't make sense which is like it was peter quint all along it's like oh we weren't supposed to know no, that peter quint <laughs> what did we think it was you yeah know, the thing from adam's family who's been bothering her <laughs> beast with five fingers um and just even stuff like that, just turning Ms. Jezel into a straight-up victim feels like one of those things that's like, we're going to modernize it and make its uh, sexual politics more interesting that makes them stupider and weaker, you know? This Terrible movie. movie. This movie I would... thinks it's, it's updating the material to make it more complex when at every step it's making it more simplistic and idiotic. I many times I wanted to uh, be turning it off, but of course we're in the movie theater. I know uh, I couldn't believe how long it was going on, and then I uh, walked. I walked to get in that labyrinthine theater. I was upstate seeing it with John. We were up. Uh, I was up for Mr. Marcus Penn's wedding this past weekend, his lovely wedding to uh, to Tam, and so I was up near John, and we watched it at a mall. And it's like a fifteen minute walk to the concession stand from that theater. And I got there and there were two old people in front of me who couldn't figure out how to order popcorn. And so I was waiting behind them for like 10 minutes and gave up and came back. And I like checked my watch and somehow only 15 seconds had passed. Like I couldn't get away from this movie. (laughs) Interminable. Unlike the Marcus wedding, uh, Marcus pin wedding, which was very, very fun. Um, I'm going to give out a few awards here. (laughs) Yes. Um, Do it. Biggest asshole version of Miles is in the Dan Curtis version, the giant ginger guy. Yeah. The horniest uh, guardian, again, goes to David Hemmings in the Nightmare Classics. <laughs> Slimiest Peter Quint. It's got to be Brando. I mean, Brando. You, can't, you can't out-slime Brando. What are you trying? Who are yeah. you kidding? A bunch of posers. Um, and most excitable Miss Gross, again, goes to the Nightmare Classics version, which literally ends with her screaming over the body of Miles. She is, like, as soon as... 
The governor tells her, there's a ghost. She's like, oh my God, seriously? You know what the funniest thing about uh, the turning version too is like Miles will being an outrageous jerk and she'll be like, can you like cool it? Can you like, like she's so low energy and she'll just be like a little frazzled. Like her hair will be messed up a little bit. And yeah. She'll just be like, you guys need to knock it off. But she has no reason to stay whatsoever. She, the movie never comes with a, with a compelling reason for her to stay. She can't even explain who hired her. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the school set it up or the ghoul set it up. Ms. Gross. Um, it's just, but her like... <sighs> Hey guys, I am like, you're not being cool. You need to like cool it. That's, that's that character in a nutshell. It's just like, what do you think you're doing? Uh, I'm like the hip teacher. So like, can you guys like chill? It's bad, but okay. Let's go back to the novella and say, what would would be our dessert for following up Henry James' novel? Our dessert pairing. Uh, I think we both picked other Henry James stories. Is that uh, that's true? You go first this time, in case we pick the same one again. Okay, I picked. uh, You know what? I lied earlier when I said that there, all the other ghost and the other Henry James versions are definitely there. You had picked one, and then I was like, "Please don't tell me," because I didn't want to know. I didn't want to have to change mine because I like my choice too much. No problem. This is a ghost who may not exist. It's in a story called "The Real Right Thing." Yeah. And for Spike Lee fans, they actually do say, I want to do the real right thing in this story. I, I don't know if Spike Lee read this story in, at NYU and that title stuck with him. It's a, it's a long shot. Not happen. to be confused with the real thing by him, right. which is the story I was quoting from. The- yes, the real right thing. And this, uh, I, I, well, my favorite Henry James story is the Aspirin Papers, personally. Um, big fan of that one, which I consider a horror story, even though it doesn't usually get grouped with them. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's the story of how the dead affect the living, you know, how the yeah. memory of the dead creates a situation that these living people have to deal with. And the real right thing is a nice like medium between turn of the screw and the aspirin papers, because it's about a famous writer who's died. Uh, his widow invites a close friend of his to come to their home and work on a biography about him. And they both have selfish reasons for doing this. They both have this, um, he wants, you know, literary prestige and she wants to kind of erase some shit that would embarrass her basically from his life. So they both start sensing... Sort of like the first uh, uh, segment in Book of Laughter and Forgetting. Yes. Good, good. Yes. They both uh, begin to sense the spirit of the writer is walking the halls, entering the rooms, kind of disapproving of what they're doing. It's a short story. It's about 15 pages long, but it has this great sense of, you know, like I said, the mix of ghost story and also sort of this melodramatic situation between these two people in this big empty house. It's very satisfying and it's a quick read and it's even funny. Like I really like this story a lot. Is yeah. that, this is not the one you picked, is it? No, I have not read that one as a matter of fact. Oh, and okay. So you should have read it. Yes. This is a good recommendation. I picked uh, his last ghost story. I believe this is the last one I ever wrote. Don't quote me on that, which is the Jolly Corner, right? Love it. Jolly Corner is about a uh, like layabout who's not living in New York. He's clearly a little bit of a Henry James surrogate. He's been abroad somewhere. And he comes back because he has these two buildings that he's inherited that uh, he's sort of living off of 
uh, the money that these buildings generate. And he comes back to look at them and see if they need fixing up and renovating them and whatnot. And he becomes convinced that living in uh, like the attic walls area of one of them is the ghost version of himself, sort of an apparitional alternate version of himself sort of like if he had stayed in America, he would be this ghost. Right. And so he sort of like starts ghost hunting. This is something I told you when we were talking about the, the innocence, uh, that it reminds me of the governess's plan with the innocence is very like Ray stands when he sees her. She's just like, sees the ghost and her plans is like, okay, on three, get her. Right? Like she doesn't seem to have a plan other than tackling it. This yeah. is like a ghost story where the main character, his whole plan is to like, I need to like tackle this guy and get some answers. Like I need to like beat up this ghost version of me. Um, and he like ends up sort of physically and spiritually wrestling with this creature version of himself and it's funny when you were reading the description of the ghost from innocence it reminded me of the uh the line in the jolly corner which i was hopped on the internet was seeing if i could pull it up while we were talking which is that when he comes across the ghost it's uh he has a sensation more complex than had ever before found itself consistent with sanity right which is a great description too of um this is crazy, but I'm not crazy. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a fun one. It's more fun than Turn of the Screw. Uh, I would say that this is one of the, the... Henry James does not get super rollicking, but this is pretty close to rollicking Henry James. Yeah, this one is also, like you said, late in his career um, and to a point where his writing just got insane, like amazingly insane. If you hate... Henry James, this has got to be like your least favorite thing ever written, I would say. Yes. Yeah. It's very, um, is it fair to say it's like James? uh, This is not fair to say. I was going to say in like HP Lovecraft territory, but he's never a terrible writer. So that's not fair to say. No, I think it's just, it gets so deep. Like you could just get. It gets weird. You could, you could stay. Yeah. Deep and weird. And you could just get bogged down on a single page any 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 given page you know yeah yeah and and very unconcerned with um resolving is the ghost real or not what happened uh how he you know injured himself yeah. and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and and it's also a bit of a love story it's also a bit about um rekindling an old relationship and that ties a lot into it uh, that's its theme is the the person we could have been, right? And when you see somebody that you could have fallen in love with that you knew a long time ago is obviously what a lot of think, people think about when they imagine alternate lives for themselves and sort of alternate realities. It's almost an alternate reality book uh, story, but I don't think he, it's still still far enough in advance of real alternate reality stuff that I don't think you can uh, say this is some kind of precursor to man in the high castle. I don't think anyone's had that idea yet. Yeah. Not quite yet at that point. Um, so turn of the screw. That's what we got. I, um, I, I, you know, I apologize if I got a little long winded and some of the talking about some of the adaptations. I like to be comprehensive in this stuff. No, it's great. I wish um, I had more time to watch more of them. And I, and I even forgot to mention, well, what kind of did I or said Valerie, Valerie Bertinelli, but the, that one's from 1995 actually. And it's called the, a Valerie Bertinelli. Yeah. Of Chomps fame. 
<laughs> it's called the uh, the Haunting of Helen Walker, and it's directed by Tom McLaughlin, the guy who directed Friday the Thirteenth Part Six and Date with an Angel. Yeah, it has Diana Rigg as Mrs. So Gross. this is the best one. Clearly, it's the best one. Diana Rigg as Mrs. Gross. This is yeah. outrage. <laughs> Uh, but you're uh, yeah. far too attractive to be a Mrs. Gross. I don't, I don't know the numbers on the most directly adapted story from classic literature. It seems like this one's got to be in the running, though. It's certainly the most adapted Henry James. Yeah, by about... I mean, it's going to be Dickens. I mean, there's a billion Christmas carols. Yeah, Christmas carol, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm no, just saying, this there. one's up there. It's up there. And there's even going to be a new one now with the uh, Netflix show. Yeah, the they're Hill making House a show. lot of it going to be called the haunting of blind manor and i'm sure it's not going to be good <laughs> i mean already <laughs> if i had to predict Bly manor you're if like i had to predict i'm not a big mike flanagan fan myself so i don't I, have a lot of faith in you it you know it's it's uh if you want to hammer somebody for shining knockoffs certainly don't don't go to <laughs> mike flanagan. the guy who made doctor sleep yeah. yeah although you know the the shining references in that movie are not that movie's problems by any stretch of the imagination sure sure um if anything they're less annoying than i thought they would be if anything they're far less annoying than the shining references in ready player one which are the worst of the worst yeah um all of ready player one is the worst of the worst Talk about <laughs> anything it touches being the worst of the worst turning yeah. a giant into a killing machine might be the most offensive thing ever done yeah i guess it is a little naive to uh posit that spielberg leaving the turning was a bad thing necessarily <laughs> was he going to direct it or was he just producing no he was producing it but then he ended yeah. up leaving after they shut down production yeah that's that's reasonable right um yeah although it feels like ready player one isn't his fault it just feels like a granddad buying you the wrong video game so, <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect that's yeah, perfect you're like oh I really, I, it, this makes me love you and respect you even more somehow that you <laughs> bought me Lee Trevino's putting challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, Mike Flanagan, I find to be uh, fine. Um, that Dr. Sleep, I mean, it improves a really bad book, but it, it can't, it just can't get over the cheese ballness mm-hmm. of any of it. It's just too cheesy. Yeah, it's too cheesy. I don't think anybody could have done anything with it. No, it's a cheesy book, absolutely. And I'm you know, with you on that. Character names and everything. It's it, the more filmmakers understand that you can't be Stephen King at all, so you've got to be something else. The better their movies are, you know, yes. only Stephen King can get away with being Stephen King. So you've you've you better be something else. And he doesn't. <laughs> he does. He's trying to be Stephen King. That's true. Instead of trying to be Henry James. Which exactly. Whereas you're not going to do better than Henry James. Right. Better figure out what you can do to have total fidelity to it. You know, not servile imitation, but fidelity. Because that's the innocence has a great fidelity. And even the Nightcomers has a fidelity to it that I find uh, respectful and fascinating in its own way. Absolutely. It's clearly written by somebody who's thought a lot about it and who cares about it. And I'd even, and I'd still say I'd go to bat for the Patsy Kensett version as like a music video version of Henry James, you know, like it's, yeah, it respects the source material. It's just, it's its own thing. Yeah. You know, it's of its time. Yeah. 
Patsy Kent's is, is of her time. Which is actually of the time that the turning wants to be of, but for some That's reason. funny. You're right. If they were going to do the turning like the 90s, <laughs> that's Someone the one they should have watched. Patsy Kent's it for Ms. Gross. Uh, duh. Uh, she can probably even do the Cockney oh, she, accent. She can still pull off the governess, I guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Turning of the screw. Thank you, everybody. Um, it's kind of a joint book movie episode there. Yes. Uh, got to we talk about the... a lot of stuff that we, we love this book. We love this uh, story. And I really yeah. had fun going through all these adaptations, even though some yeah. of them were, were grueling. <laughs> I love to watch the the three movies again. To watch Innocence and Nightcomers again was really... um. It's great. And, you know, I would have seen the turning. That's all I can say about that is that it didn't, it didn't cause a problem in my life. Trying yeah. to this episode. I would have inflicted that on myself anyway. Certainly it would have been a lot more dire if I had not seen it with you. If I'd seen it alone, it probably would have been You had so damaging. much more patience. I don't know if you could tell. I was going bananas in that theater. That and was part the of the enjoyment. Yeah. such a nothing. The ending <laughs> is such a dry squeak of a fart that it's just, I was surprised the audience didn't react it's the kind of ending that normally the audience of regular people at a mall goes oh like audibly but instead they just got up and dutifully filled out of the theater <laughs> as the inexplicable final shot of her running her hand over a wall played that that I, you were like let's leave and i was like we should see where this shot is going right and no, I was like, it's, going nowhere. Nowhere. it's going it's nowhere it's going to a fade <laughs> out i was like john you're right again you're right again god damn it it's going to a fade out that is not even going to play Maisie Star. Such is the incompetence of this film. It's so weird if you're going to set it in 1992 and then just get like the hot new artist sampler of 2017. What are you even doing, movie? What are you even Take a look at your doing? life, movie. Take a look at your life. Exactly. You needed the real Evan. How do you not get Ethan Hawke to play the, the father? You know, to play the uncle. That's if you're making it grunge. You have grown up, hey, that's my bike guy from Reality Bites playing the uncle. Right. But this does not even reach sinister levels of... And his Kurt Cobain sweater being like, I'm just over Averageness. It needed more 90s references. It needed more Last Days flavor. Till the end of the road by Boys to Men should have been playing on a TV at one point. She should have been like looking at her CNC Music Factory CD and be like, "I can't believe I ever liked this," and throwing it out the window. You know. Now we're just we're we're turning into the turning is what we're doing. We're <laughs> making these poor people listen to us talk about this movie. Thank you, everybody. This has been the episode. Have a great time. I just love Butch Vig. Ah!